0: Make sure we can focus and concentrate and get all the worries and exhaustion from the day out of our heads. Focus on the Word of God. Let it refresh us. Get get away from worries about tomorrow. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we are pleased to be able to gather together to study Your Word, to let the absolute truth of Your Word work in our souls under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that He might produce in us spiritual growth, and that we might utilize Your Word to face the details and challenges and problems of life. Father, we thank You that You have provided a means of salvation that's based on grace, and a means of the spiritual life that is also based on grace. And as we study the lesson this evening, we pray that we would be open to what the Holy Spirit has to teach each one of us, that we would put aside preconceived notions, and that we would be open to study the Word, to learn what it has to say to each one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Genesis 14. Now, let's go back and review the framework just a little bit for understanding Abram's life. When we started this study, I pointed out that the New Testament utilizes Abram's life in a variety of different ways, teaching and developing certain doctrines. One of those doctrines is a doctrine of justification by faith. Romans chapter 4 uses uh, (coughs) Abram as the... Uh, case study for understanding justification by faith. That's what happens at phase one, salvation. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about, uh, or excuse me, James chapter 2, 26 and following talks about the fact that at his mature stage, Abram was a picture of justification by faith before man, that is, as a testimony to both men and angels in the angelic conflict. Hebrews 11 talks about Abram as an example of someone who learned to walk by faith. So what we have in Romans 4 is phase 1 salvation. What we have in James 2 is a picture of Abram at the pinnacle of his spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And Hebrews 11 tells us that if we study Abram, we can learn how to get from point A to point B. When we look at James, which is very similar to the context of Hebrews 11 and 12, we understand that uh, we're to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result, that we may be mature and complete. And that is the method that God uses to mature us. We walk by means of the Spirit. We study the Word. The Word is uh, taken into our soul. The Holy Spirit then brings it to our memory for application. And the application comes in the form of tests. And what we see in the life of Abram is a variety of tests. And we're going to hit a new test this evening at the end of chapter 14. At the end of chapter 14, the first test was at the beginning of chapter 12. When God commanded him to leave Ur of the Chaldees, to leave his family, leave his father's house, and to go to a land that God would show him. I've pointed this out so many times I feel like a broken record, that Abram only partially obeyed, but God nevertheless doesn't deal with us in terms of where we ought to be, but where we are, and there is progress. Eventually, uh, Terah, his father, died. He left Haran, headed to the promised land. Again, God reiterated the unconditional promise. In verse 7, to your descendants I will give this land. After the promise comes the test. And the test was that, the land, that there was a famine in the land. Would he stay where God wanted him to be and trust him in the midst of the famine, or would he try to solve the problem on his own? Great lesson for us. Are we going to stay in fellowship and utilize promises and endure, that is, to remain under the testing, the difficulty, the pressures of life, or are we going to try to get out from under the pressures or alleviate the pressures or in some way ameliorate the pressures through a human viewpoint, whether it's drugs, pleasure, uh, social relationships, whether it's lying, cheating, stealing, whatever it may be that we have to do in order to escape the pressures of the test. Well, Abram failed. He lied. And he presented his wife as his half-sister. Things went from bad to worse. He was kicked out, went back to the land, learned the lesson. Back in the land, he has another test. The land won't support him and his servants. That's all those who work for him. And it won't and uh, and sustain Lot and all his servants at the same time. So they had to come to a parting of the ways. But behind the scenes, once again, we see how God works at multiple levels in our lives. He's not just doing one thing. He's doing many things. God is the original multitasker. And God is in the process of doing and accomplishing a number of things. So not only is He teaching Abram to trust him, He's also finishing the process of getting Abraham isolated from his family. So Abram recognizes that he has to split from Lot. What makes a good human viewpoint-based decision, and goes to the best-looking land in the valley, heads down to the Dead Sea area, and shows the typical attitude of the unbeliever, or the believer who has no doctrine, and that is they believe that morality is a non-issue in decision making, and spiritual issues are secondary. So he bases his decisions on pure empiricism. The valley looks like the paradise of God, and off he goes, and now he's going to have problems. Abram passed that test. So we come to the fourth test at the beginning of chapter 14, and in the fourth test, Abram has to look at himself in terms of the mandate God gave him back in 12.2 to be a blessing. Now that's the key word that we have to use to understand and interpret chapter 14, is Abram is learning to function now in the land as a blessing. And the first thing that happens is there's the invasion of the uh, kings from the east. There are uh, four kings from the east under the uh, operational command of keter and they invade, they sweep down through the rift valley on the uh, east side of the jordan and they take out all the major tribes of, of the giants that are operating over there take numerous spoils sweep around in a fish hook movement down by the uh, gulf of akaba come up to kadesh barnea engage in battle with the amorites and then the amalekites wipe them out again take hordes of plunder and then they assault the five cities of the plain, just roll over them like a steamroller uh, take out everything, take numerous captives so now their, their ranks are swelled with slaves and captives and plunder and animals, camels and and uh, sheep and, and cattle and they're herding all this north so that slowed them down word came to Abram word was one man escaped, took word to Abram the Hebrew in verse 13 and Abram along with his 318 trained servants now that indicates that they're They're not just your normal run-of-the-mill house servants. They understood something about military tactics, and so he has trained men, but he also has allies in three brothers who are Amorites, uh, Mamre, Eshko, and Aner. And they uh, get together and they devise a strategy. They hit the uh, Eastern Coalition at night. And everybody panics and they're able to rescue the prisoners and recover all the spoils. Now this is a load of treasure that they've got. They, they didn't just put, pick up, you know, fifteen or twenty thousand dollars worth of goods. They probably have uh, millions of dollars worth of treasure that they've recovered along with all of the people that, that, that have been captured and been slaves. So this is a treasure trove. And along with them, he's rescued his nephew Lot, which was Abram's major motivation. But he's functioning as a blessing to everybody that has lived along the path of these invaders. And he has now defeated their forces. They're not going to be an issue anymore internationally. So this is a major international victory. This would make the front page of every newspaper in the world, and they'd throw a ticker tape parade for Abram down uh, Broadway in New York. This is a major victory in the ancient world and ends the military power of this coalition uh, for at least two or three hundred years. Because it's not until Hammurabi rises in Babylon in about 1790 that you have any sort of resurgence of a political power base or military power base in the ancient world, and that's almost 300 years later. So this is a significant victory, but that's not the point that God the Holy Spirit is making in the text. And that's one of the things I think the... Lord has really impressed on me in studying the Word the last few years is to pay attention to where the, what, the Lord, what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing in the text and not extraneous details that can be a lot of fun to study. See, we can get all caught up and twisted around listening to or studying ancient Near Eastern history, but the Lord doesn't spend any time giving us a whole lot of data on Keterleomer and, and the five kings because that's not the point. The point isn't a study of their culture, their civilization, or their military capacity. The point is Abraham is learning to function as a blessing. So he passes that test. But as soon as he passes that test, and he's now at the at enjoying his victory, he immediately moves into the next test. And that's how it is in life. As soon as we pass one test, we don't have time to just sit back on our laurels and say, I made it through that one. Let's just kind of enjoy what God's provided. As soon as we make it through one, often it contains the dynamics for the next test. And that's what happens. Because the next test is the test of gratitude. It's the test of gratitude. And this is the test that's outlined in verses 18 to 24. Actually, starting in 17. 17. To 24. This is the next test. It's the test of gratitude, and it has to do with money. So you knew you came to the wrong place tonight. One thing about the Word of God, it always steps on our toes. And one of the things that always steps on everybody's toes is as soon as you start meddling with their money. But the Word of God meddles with our money more than it meddles with anything else in our life. There are more passages in the Scripture that have to do with how the believer is to handle money than just about any other subject in the Bible. Because money is something that is such a distraction to our life and something that we can easily slip over and to put all our hopes and dreams into. That's why in Timothy, Paul says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Notice he didn't say it's money that's root. Somebody always misquotes that. It's not money that's the root of all evil. Money is wonderful. Money is a thing that makes ministries grow and go. Money takes the Bibles into uh, all kinds of places in the world. Money pays the bills. And money's important. Money's necessary. There's nothing wrong with accumulating wealth. That's something that a lot of people today don't understand. You know, it's funny, a lot of older folks don't understand it. A lot of folks think, you know, I just want my life and my money to run out at the same time. That's not a biblical attitude, by the way. Biblical attitude in Proverbs is, blessed is a man who leaves an inheritance for his children. Why? Because that builds wealth from generation to generation. And then if you're operating on divine viewpoint, and you go through four or five generations of believers, you have a tremendous amount of wealth that can be used uh, for, for all kinds of different ministries, for missionaries and all kinds of things and foundations and grants. And unfortunately, the trend of the world is to always go in a negative direction. And that's what happens. You can go to some of the old line seminaries, you know, like Princeton and Harvard and Yale. have these great chairs of theology that were endowed when they were the bastions of orthodoxy, and now they're the seats of heresy. But yet, they have endowments that are so incredible that, that it doesn't matter who sits there, they're going to be paid forever and ever and ever. So there's always a problem of living in a fallen world. Well, the test of gratitude at the end of chapter 14, is going to give us the opportunity to talk about the truth about tithing. The truth about tithing. Tithing is one of the most misunderstood subjects, I think, regarding money among churches today. And it's related to the doctrine of giving. And it's amazing how many people don't understand this whole subject. And I may even say a thing or two tonight that, Cause your ears to wiggle or waggle a little bit because you haven't heard it that way before. But we're going to try to have the uh, honesty and the objectivity to look at the text and see what the text says and what it doesn't say. See, there are some folks who are really going to get their, their toes stomped on tonight, but I don't think they're actually present in the congregation. Okay, let's look at what happens. This is one of the most unusual meetings that took place in the ancient world. Genesis 14, 17. As Abram is coming back, now you can just imagine this. They're battle worn and weary. You've got Abram, you've got the three brother, the three Amorite brothers, you've got the 318 servants, you've got all the captives that had just been, uh, just been released, just been given their freedom, and they're, they're coming along and they're pushing ahead of them all the camels and the goats and the sheep and the cattle. And all this coming back, and they're approaching Jerusalem. Verse 17, And the king of Sodom, we met him back in verse 2, his name was Bera. Bera the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, which is just north of Jerusalem, after his return from the defeat of Keter, Laomer, and the kings that were with him. So the first person that's coming out is the perverted King of Sodom, this guy's about as poor a leader as there could be in the ancient world. He is uh, the picture of everything that was bad and evil in terms of a fallen decadent culture, one that he allowed to just continue. and they're coming down that's the black arrow on the map <coughs> outlines their path as they return from up north where they had defeated the five kings and they are approaching Jerusalem Jerusalem is down there in the black box, so you get an idea of where that's located. So they've moved all that distance, and that distance is about as far as from uh, somewhere around Garrison, Texas, down to Houston. Now, anybody here know where Garrison, Texas is? Well, that's you go through there East Texas when you go through Teneha, Thompson, Bobo, and Blair. Some of you folks who've been around a while will remember that song, but that means you're pre-World War II, so you won't want to admit to it. But that's where I did my student teaching years ago. They only had one stoplight then, and they only have one stoplight now. But it's just north of Nacogdoches. So it's not far. You know, maybe 140 miles. But they've been moving all these sheep and cattle and goats and everything all that way. And so they're tired. But they're going, but he has a test. Often, test comes when we're tired at the end of a victory that's taken a lot out of us. So, milk. He's met with another person Two pe- men I couldn't imagine two men in all of history That are at more opposites Than the king of Sodom And Melchizedek Who is the king of Salem Verse 18 reads Then Melchizedek The king of Salem Brought out bread and wine and I think that's interesting That uh, When we look at verse 17, the king of Sodom comes out. We're not told that he brought anything. In fact, he's just interesting in getting some people back and maybe some more slaves. Now, We don't want to go down the the mental path that this Sodomite would take us and what he was going to do with all those slaves. But we know what's coming in chapter 17. So this guy's motives are probably just down in the dirt somewhere. But Melchizedek shows up, and he brings bread and wine. He brings uh, logistical sustenance for Abram and the troops that are with him. And we read in this verse that he is the king of Salem. Now, there are some things that we need to point out about Melchizedek before we get into a lot of, of detail and analysis. Melchizedek itself is not a... Name. It is a title. It is the Hebrew word melech, m e l e k, melech, with the uh, construct ending I, plus the Hebrew noun uh, tzedek, or tzadik, from tzaddak, the verb meaning righteous. So it literally means the king of righteousness, or you could translate it the righteous king. And this is a title that has been put on him. We don't know the name of the individual. We just know this title which characterizes him. He's the righteous king in contrast to Bera, the king of Sodom, who is the evil king. And when we studied that, we studied his name, we said that was probably not his personal name, but may have also been some sort of title hung on him because the last syllable, R-A, is the Hebrew word for evil. So we have this contrast between the evil king and the righteous king. And Melchizedek is not only the king of righteousness, he is the king of location, Salem. Now most scholars believe that Salem is known by its modern name of Jerusalem. That last two syllables, Salem, is the same. And it's from the Hebrew root shalom, meaning peace. So he is called the righteous king. And he is the king of peace, literally, the king of Salem. And he brings out sustenance. He's concerned for taking care of the troops, whereas the evil king is not. He's just concerned with what he's going to get out of this. And we're told further that Melchizedek is the priest of God Most High. And the name for God here in the Hebrew is El Elyon. El Elyon. Now, El is a generic name for God. It is like the English word God or even the Greek word Theos. It is not a personal name. The personal name for God in the Old Testament was based on the sacred tetragrammaton, which was written YHWH with no vowels and usually thought to be pronounced Yahweh. And that was His covenant name. But El was more of a Gentile designation for God, just as the English word G-O-D is our designation for God. And Elyon emphasizes the meaning of El, this is the Almighty God. And the implication is that this is the, it's the same God that that Abram worships. Abram worships a God that he knows, although he doesn't know the full significance of the name, he knows him by his personal name. Yahweh and Abram is the friend of God, but this is the same God that Abram worships. So this was the Gentile name and we find that on the one side you have this, this figure who comes out of the earth, the Chaldees, that's Abram, and he is chosen by God to be the father of this new nation this new group of people that's going to be a counter-movement to all the degradation that's happening among the Gentiles. And on the other hand, we now meet this other Gentile who has a a designation as the righteous king, and all the trappings that seem to be associated with him in this passage set him up. And it raises a number, number of different questions, not the least of which is the fact that he is a priest of God, with a definite article he 's the priest of God, most high, so he represents some kind of priesthood, but he is also a king and What we learn is that he is the uh, at this time the representative of a category of priests known as priest kings, and their origin is somehow shrouded. In the darkness, that surrounds the events after the flood. We don't know where this came from. We don't know how it's lined out. The Old Testament just doesn't give us that information. But he is in a line of royal king priests, and this is going to have tremendous significance later on. Melchizedek is arguably the most significant or theologically most significant Gentile in the Old Testament because of the way he is used in the New Testament. He is a Gentile priest-king. His past and his present are shrouded in mystery. We, we don't know anything about him other than he shows up here as the king of Salem. Now, Salem was a Jebusite town. The Jebusites aren't defeated and run out of Jerusalem until David finally does it in the early years of his uh, monarchy. The Jebusites were just another part of the idolatrous pagan Canaanite uh, tribal groups that inhabited the land. So, this raises a question where in the world did this guy come from? How in the world did he get in this position of ascendancy and power in a pagan Canaanite town? And what is his relationship with Abram? Did Abram just come to know him? Well, Abram's been in the land now for five to eight years, and this guy's the, the um, uh, significant personage he seems to be then Abram would have known about him already, but we're not told about him. And not only that, if he is who I think he is, he's been around a long time and he will be around throughout most of Abram's life, but this is the only time we see him. And that suggests that he is a representative of an order that is passing away and that Abram is the representative of a new order. And what we are witnessing here is the changing of the guard in history. The changing of the guard from the old guard that was the post-Noahic civilization and religion focusing on God at, at, in his name, El Elyon, and the shift to Abram and God's relationship to the Jewish nation. So this is who we're introduced here in uh, Genesis 14:18. Now, the last thing I want to say about this is that his position as the royal priest-king becomes the type or the shadow image for a priestly role of David later on, but ultimately for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 8, when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, he dresses himself in an ephod, which is a priestly garment, And he has this enormous procession where they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city, and all along the route, David dances before the Ark and before the Lord. And he is functioning like a priest. Well, there's no basis under the Mosaic Covenant for a priest from the tribe of David. David, I mean, a priest from the tribe of Judah. David is of the tribe of Judah. He's not a Levite in Israel. Only Levites were priests. So on what basis can David function like a priest? It can only be if he's functioning according to the priestly order of Melchizedek rather than the priestly order of Levi. And this is fundamental to understanding a number of things that are going on which we'll look at next time as we study in uh, in David's reign and how that's a foreshadowing of the life of Christ. But that lays the basis for what Jesus Christ is going to be as the royal priest king because he's not qualified to be a priest either because he is from the tribe of Judah. So his qualification as a priest doesn't fall under the umbrella of the Mosaic Covenant because the Mosaic Covenant restricts uh, the priesthood to the tribe of Levi. But the priesthood that the Mosaic Covenant is talking about is the priesthood of Israel in terms of allowing the Jews to worship God. And to understand that we were driven back to what? To understanding that the Mosaic Covenant is a contract between God as party of the first part And the Jews is party of the second part. And it's just like any contract you sign, whether it's a credit card contract or your home mortgage or or whatever it may be, there are two legal parties in any contract. And in the Mosaic Law contract, it is God making a contract with Israel. It was a temporary contract. It was never designed to be permanent. That's the argument in Hebrews chapter 7 is that because you have a new covenant introduced in Jeremiah 31, just the very terminology of new versus old indicates that the Mosaic covenant was never, ever intended to be permanent. It was temporary. So it had a temporary priesthood. But what's the permanent priesthood? The permanent priesthood is a priesthood that is valid for all of the human race and not just for Jews. And this is why Jesus goes to to the order of Melchizedek, because Melchizedek is that early order of king-priest that functioned in relationship to the entire human race. And so Jesus Christ then is a priest, not according to the order of Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek, this order of Gentile priest-kings. And this is laid out in Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted more than any other Old Testament verse in Hebrews. And it's also laid out in Hebrews 5, 6, Hebrews 5:10, Hebrews 6:20. And Hebrews 7, 1 through 21. Now, don't worry if you didn't get all that down. We'll go through all those passages next time. What I want to focus on this evening, though, is, is the, what, what it happens in this meeting between Abram and Melchizedek. The New Testament seems to also make Melchizedek even more enigmatic than what he appears to be. And it's making a point. This is found in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. To whom also, and this is a recitation, what we have in Hebrews 7. Now, I'm going to say this about three times tonight, maybe four, and I want you to pay attention to this. If you're going to study tithing, you better understand this or you're toast on the subject. And that is that what's happening in Hebrews 7 is merely a rehearsal, a narrative, a reminder of what happened in Genesis chapter 14. There's no prescription, by prescription I mean a commandment or a mandate, in Hebrews chapter 7. It is merely rehearsing what happened in Genesis 14 to make a theological point related to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 isn't talking about giving in the church age or in the post-cross era. It's just a reminder. Hebrews 7, 2, to whom also Abraham, that is to Melchizedek, also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. See, it's just a description. It's just telling you what happened. It's not saying that any, it says nothing in the chapter about following that example. It says, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, that's Melchizedek, the name, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And then in verse 3, it says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now this is the verse that gets everybody all wrapped around the axle and all kinds of strange views. Because what we need to do is identify who Melchizedek is. We don't have a personal name, so we don't know exactly... Who he is, and there are several attempts to try to identify Melchizedek. Now the first attempt is from those who, who look at this passage and think that don't understand the context and they say, "Hmm, without father and without mother, that means he wasn't born. Without genealogy, he had no human history. he's not a human being. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, he wasn't born, he didn't die. But made like the Son of God Well who else could he be He had to be the Son of God He remains a priest continually So their conclusion is That Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ That is not That doesn't fit for a number of reasons The most obvious of which Is if Melchizedek is going to serve As a type of Christ Which is how he's used in Hebrews Then he can't be Christ Let me say that again if he's going to serve as a type of Christ, he can't be Christ. A type is a picture of a greater reality. Type comes from the Greek word tupos, meaning an example, and it's used in theological verbiage to represent any, uh, to indicate anything that is used that presents some sort of picture of some later reality. For example, in the furniture in the tabernacle, it was made of acacia wood that was overlaid with gold. The acacia wood represents the humanity of Christ. The gold covering represents the deity of Christ. And they're united together in one thing. The blood that is shed in a sacrifice represents death. the Ultimately, the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. The lamb that was sacrificed represents the Lord Jesus Christ because it was without spot or blemish. So the lamb or the or the ark or the altar that's a combination of wood and gold or the blood are all called types. They are examples of something. And the thing that they're an example of, the thing that they point to, is called an antitype. So you have the type and the antitype, but they can't be the same thing. Otherwise, you don't have typology. So this is just one of the uh, more basic reasons why Melchizedek couldn't be the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, there's nothing contextual in Genesis to indicate that he's anything other than a human being. There's nothing contextual in Genesis to indicate that he's anything other than a human being. But he appears in Genesis in terms of the literature, Without any genealogy Everybody else has a genealogy leading up to him But not Melchizedek He just appears in the text There's no mention of his father There's no mention of a mother There's no mention of his birth There's no mention of his death But he is, a, he is like He is not the Son of God He is like the Son of God In those elements And that refers to the literary structure The writer of, he, of uh, Genesis Leaves out all that detail because there is a symbolic significance to Melchizedek that he's emphasizing, that he wants to teach something about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how we handle this particular passage. So the first option that he's the pre-incarnate Christ doesn't doesn't hold water. The second option is that um, that is often offered is uh, that he's just a Jebusite king. That worships God But this doesn't really fit the picture Either because of what we know About the Jebusites And the idolatrous culture of The Canaanites There have been those who have gone so far As to say well this is the unfallen Adam Who came from another planet Get some really weird views Or it's an angel And then who knows what else I mean there's some real whack jobs out there Who just can't figure out What this is all about So they just you know, get on a little L S D and take a trip and try to figure out who Melchizedek is. I think the solution is found in ancient Jewish tradition. And ancient Jewish tradition, and this goes this has its roots back as far as before the the exile, is that Melchizedek is Shem. And this makes sense, that Melchizedek is Shem, the son of Noah. Let me put a graph up here to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Noah is the top line up here. That top purple line represents the birth and the death of Noah. His son, Shem, is represented by the red line. Shem was born two years after God warned Noah that there would be a flood because we're told that two years after the flood he had a son, and he was 100 years old when he had a son, so we can track track Shem's uh, age. Now, if we put a line, I have a yellow line there, at the death of Abram, we see that it is. it looks on the graph like it's almost at the same time as Shem. If you work out the numbers, Shem died ten years before Abram did. And even though Shem is, let's count them up here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, is that right? Nine generations before Abram. He's still alive. Now, if we were to go back nine generations, we'd probably be back somewhere around one of our Puritan forefathers. So this shows that, that the, the longevity. And everybody else, with the exception of Eber, who is a great-great, four times great-grandfather to Abram, uh, everybody other than Eber is dead. And so all of these intervening generations would have been born and died, and this guy... Shem is still hanging around. Probably Ham and Japheth were still around too. So these men appeared, those first two or three generations off the ark, appeared to these successive generations as if they were gods. They had no beginning or end. They lived forever. Look how many generations have come and gone, and they're still hanging in there. And he is a Gentile, and he is the father of the Semitic line as Shem. He's the father of the line that ultimately ends up in Abram. And he is, in in the um, Jewish tradition, he is passing the torch to Abram. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that you can go hang your hat on doctrinally. But what is happening in the text is clear, is that there is a Uh, A meal between Melchizedek and Abram, and there is a focal point, a shift, that this king of righteousness, that's a Gentile priest-king, is meeting the progenitor of the Jewish race, and there is some sort of passing of the torch taking place at this particular point. And what happens is that in verse 19 is that Melchizedek does something to Abram. He blesses him. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that Melchizedek comes in and he says, Blessed be Abram of the God Most High. Abram, excuse me, Melchizedek is blessing Abram. What did God tell Abram back in Genesis thirteen three? I will bless those who bless you. Okay, see, you can't just go in and read this story without plugging it into the entire structure of what God's doing to Abraham. See how that all ties together. You have to look at the you can't you have to look at the Old Testament contextually. So Melchizedek comes out and he's blessing Abram. Says, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now this is a really interesting term. If you were reading that or I were reading that, I would hope that what you would expect to read there is Blessed be Abram of God most high, creator of heaven and earth. That's a word that I would expect there, not possessor. That's not the normal word that you see in that phrase. What you have is the, the Hebrew word kana, which means to acquire, to purchase, to buy. It's the idea of tra- something transferring ownership or gaining possession of something. And so the picture that Melchizedek is, is making of God, the emphasis here is that, that Abram is worshiping the, worshiping the God that owns everything. He didn't just make it, he owns it. He's got the title deed ultimately to the earth. He owns the trees, he owns the soil, he owns the water, he owns the pagan kings that are running all over the the planet tearing up everything. He owns the spoil, he owns everything. It's an ownership issue. And this drives us to, in some degree, an idea of material possessions. That's integral to understanding the theme of this whole meeting between Melchizedek and Abram. He's saying, blessed be Abram of God Most High, the guy who owns the heavens and the earth. And then he goes on to say, and blessed be God Most High, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, what do you think that word delivered means? I mean, if you're like me, you probably think, well, this has some soteriological connection here. It's redemption, ransoming, something of that nature. Wrong. It's the Hebrew word magan, which means to deliver or to hand something over as a gift. So you've got God being presented as the owner and possessor of everything, including the pagan kings and all their plunder, and He's the one who's giving this to Abraham. That's the dynamic here. It's very material. He is reminding Abram that everything that he owns, everything that he got, came from the God who really owns it all. You're just, you, you, you just have temporary rental agreement. But everything that you have belongs to God. And everything you just got, Abram, even though you were the one who went out with your 318 servants and your Amorite allies and you did the nitty-gritty hard work and sweat and toil and defeated the enemy, God gave you what you have. And the reason I say that, and you have to drive it home, is because every now and then I run into folks who think, why do you thank God for everything? You're the one who worked for it. Hello? No. God gives it to us. We may be involved in the process, but there, we all know there are a lot of people who work extremely hard from sunup to sundown and don't ever have any return on their time investment. They work hard, but there's no fruit. Or some people work very hard and they make very little. Some people don't work very hard and they seem to make a lot. Ultimately, God is the one who is in control. God is the one who gives us everything that we have. The cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the houses we live in, the beds we sleep in. Everything that we have, our families, our friends, everything comes from God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. And he is the one who gives that to us. Now that's the backdrop to understanding that last sentence. And he, Abram, gave a tithe of all. He gave a tithe. He gave 10%. That's literally what the word means in the, in the Hebrew. It just means 10%. Now let me skip through a couple of verses here. This is the first time the word tithe is used. The first time the word tithe is used in the Old Testament. So we'll skip ahead. Skip, we'll come back to the other verses next week. What I want to do now is just focus on the truth about tithing. So this is the first point. The first time the word tithe is used is in Genesis 14.20. The last time the word tithe is used in the Bible is in Hebrews 7, verses 2 through 6. What's interesting, what's important to note, and I'm going to say it at least three or four more times, is that in neither passage is there an imperative. Abraham gives 10%. That's what tithe means. We'll see that in a minute with the words. Gives 10% to, to Melchizedek. Why? Well, we don't know. Because there's no command. There's no mandate anywhere prior to this that if you're a believer... You need to give 10% to the local priest. There's no mandate there. And all God's people breathe a sigh of relief. But you know what? There's no command anywhere in the first 13 chapters of Genesis to perform a sacrifice either. Well, we say, well, God must have instructed them to. Yeah, well, there, maybe there was some sort of instruction. This tithing idea is pervasive in the Middle East it 's everywhere it 's throughout all the cultures you go back, you read Egyptian literature, Hittite literature, you read the and most of the stuff that we recover is just banking documents i mean if you're, if you 're into accounting you'd just love to be an archaeologist because that 's most of what you get it 's just a lot of receipts and, and, and business documents, and so and so came into the store today and bought such and such for so much money, and you have you know stacks and stacks of clay t- tablets because You know, all all the kings had to have good accountants so they could tax everybody. And tithing was part of taxation. That's the other principle we have to recognize throughout this is tithing was understood as taxation. When we get to the last time the word tithe is used in Hebrews 7, 2 through 6, it refers to the Genesis 14 episode. But let me tell you something. Most of you don't have a problem with this, but there are people out there that do. Find an imperative mood verb anywhere in the first ten verses of Hebrews chapter 7 related to tithing. It's not there. There's no mandate in Genesis 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, all the way down to 1. There's no mandate in Genesis 14. In other words, both are describing what happened here. They're not saying follow the example. They're not saying this is the pattern they' in fact, when you get into Hebrews chapter seven, the whole point is that because Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the Gentile priest king, was superior to the Jew, therefore the Gentile priest kingship is superior to the Jewish priest kingship. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about, well, oh, you need a tithe because Abram tithe. He's talking about the fact that because Abram tithed to this Gentile priest-king, it shows who's in authority. It's the Gentile priest-king. Any application of this ultimately to to giving in the Christian life uh, stretches way beyond the point of application. Second point I want to make is that the words, the Hebrew word is ma'asar maasar, which is based on the preposition ma, meaning from or out of, and asar, which is the word for ten, so literally it means from ten, or a tenth. The Greek word that is used in the New Testament is dekatos, which is the genitive form of the word for ten, and means basically the same thing. It means literally ten percent, one-tenth, ten percent. Now, a third thing that I want to note is that the first use of tithing is found here in genesis 14 we're we're 700 years 600 700 years from the mosaic law this is not a legal context so when we come along we say tithing is legalistic back up a minute if it was if it's legalistic then there would be law in genesis 14 there's no law here so why is abram doing this He's doing this out of his own volition. There's not a legislated mandate to tithe. It is a free will offering. I'm going to make a point out of this later. And that point is that you have two kinds of giving to support the church or the sanctuary in the Old Testament. Excuse me, let me articulate that correctly. The sanctuary in the Old Testament, church ministry in the New Testament. There's two kinds of of giving. There is mandatory giving, which is legislated. And there is free will giving. And what we have here is an example of a free will offering. Abram is making this decision out of his own spiritual life, expressing gratitude to God who just gave him this victory, and he is giving out of what he, what he has taken to Melchizedek. And that's the passing of the test. The first part of the blessing test was would he be a blessing and go out and defeat the five kings and rescue Lot and everybody else? And the second part was, would he let it go to his head and hoard everything, or would he operate on the basis of grace and gratitude and give from what he gained to the Lord? And what he gave was 10%. Now, why did he give 10%? It's a good round number. And that's all I can say about it. It seems to be a standard in the, in the ancient world. <clears throat> so if we, let's back up a minute so I don't get out of order here. The first point was the meaning of the word tithe, or the use of it is for the first time is in Genesis 14, second time in Hebrews 7. Second point were the two words ma'asar in the Hebrew, and aser or, or me'asar, or that's the Hebrew, uh, decatos for the Greek, Third point, the first use is found in the context that precedes the Mosaic Law, so tithing isn't necessarily legalistic. And fourth, what I've already iterated is that there's no command to give a tenth. Now, the fifth point, are there parallels? I just love it. I found out something new today. Are there parallels in the ancient world? Yes, there are. This is a statement from a land grant given to a minor village official. That's a grant of land, a gift of land by the king of Ugarit. Ugarit was a town in the northern part of of the Canaanite landmass. Now why is this important? First of all it's a land grant. When you study the ancient treaties and contracts what you find out is that that Uh, What scholars have discovered is that the structure of the Abrahamic Covenant was on the pattern of royal land grants in the ancient world. And that is that a king just makes a free will gift to a subject of a piece of land. And that's what the Abrahamic Covenant did. It's a royal land grant. And so here we have an example from Ugarit of a royal land grant. And look at what's included within the verbiage of the land grant. Quote, from the present day, Nikmadu, the son of Amistamru, king of Ugarit, gave the village Uchnapu, see he's making a land grant, he's giving this village of Uknapu to Karkushu. Don't you love the names? Karkushu, the son of Ananu, and to Apapa, the king's daughter, with its tithe. Now, this is, this is like the feudal system in the Middle Ages. He's giving this piece of land to, to uh, uh, Karkushu along with its tithe and with its custom duties and with its gifts. In other words, there's a certain monetary income that's going to go, come with this piece of property, with this village. And part of that income is designated as a tithe. And from this, we see that the way the word tithe is used in the ancient world was similar to a tax, and it was a 10% tax. It's like we have a, whatever it is, 8.5% tax, which they just raised on us today. Thank you very much. Uh, But this is part of it. It's tithe, custom duties, and gifts. These are all part of legislated gifts. So the word tithe is used in a number of different documents. And then it goes on to explain some other elements of the gift, which we don't need to go into. There's another example, that, now this comes from a period about 1500 B.C., so this is some um, 600 years after Abram, but things didn't change real fast in the ancient world like they do today. I mean, we, you're not moving through, I mean, we, we have made more changes in the last 100 years than were made in the, probably the previous 300 years, and more changes were made in those 300 years than the previous 1,000 years, so... Uh, don't think of things as changing a lot just because there's a 500-year gap. Also, we have evidence of, a, of, a, of some law codes that were handed down from Hammurabi to his descendants, to his dynasty, which lasted for uh, several hundred years. And his son's name was samsu ilunu samsu iluna whose dates are 1749 to 1712 B.C., and they continued down through uh, his son and grandson, Ami Datana, who was from 1683 to 1647, and Ami Saduka, 1646 to 1626. And his laws recognized the tithe as the basic unit of taxation. The tithe was a basic unit of taxation. Now, what this tells us, we're, we're putting ourselves squarely in the historical context Of Abram, where does Abram get this idea of ten percent? Well, there may have been some divine revelation related to ten percent at some point, but we don't know. But what we do know is that the normative cultural practice from all these surrounding cultures was to give ten, pay taxes in terms of ten percent, or if you were going to give a gift to the gods, you would give a tithe. This was the standard operating procedure. So when we look at this study, we have to recognize that tithe means 10%. It made 10% everywhere across the ancient world, and it's not equivalent to just just giving. So that's what happens when you leap into the modern context of a lot of churches. They talk about how everybody needs to tithe, and in some contexts they, they, they don't really mean 10% because they want more than that. What they mean is giving, but tithing can't be used as a synonym for giving. Primary use of tithing in the ancient world, as we'll see from Levitica, from Exodus all the way down uh, into the Gospels, had to do with taxation. Now, the word tithe or tithes or tithing were only used about four times in the Gospels. And every time they're found in the Gospels, Jesus is talking about how the Pharisees are applying the Old Testament tithe laws in a legalistic manner. See, you can't say tithing is legalistic because the law is holy and righteous and pure, and the law had three tithes, three ten percent taxes. So you can't say, well, that's legalistic per se. It's not. It's the way in which it's used to try to gain approbation with God and show off how great a Christian you are. And see, this is a problem people run into, is they they use giving as a means of, of showing how God has blessed them. And it's a public thing. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses this. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. That's giving or tithing. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, if you do it where people can see you doing it, and people know how much you're giving, well, that's your reward. There won't be a reward in heaven. Do it in secret. Don't let anybody know. It's not anybody else's business. It's only between you and the Lord. Jesus goes on to say in verse 2, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Don't let everybody know what you've just done. They do it that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, they have their reward. Verse 3, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Privacy. That your charitable deed may be in secret. Giving must be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. So giving is to be done in secret. Now as we wrap this up, what I want to point out, last of all, is that there wasn't one tithe under the Old Testament system. There were three tithes. There was three, three, tithes, three tithes. Numbers 18, 21 to 24. There's a tithe for all Jewish citizens, believer and unbeliever. Totally unrelated to anything, anything spiritual. What we have to recognize is that in the Levitical law, it was a constitution, a government doctrine, a, a document, a contract between God and Israel. Nobody else was required to follow any of these laws. If you were a Gentile believer, it did not apply. You weren't a party of the contract. Now there were three mandated tithes given, and if you add them up that, and one, two of them were every year. You gave 10% that went to the support of the Levites. That's the bureaucracy. In a theocratic government where God's the king, you have to administer the kingdom. Well, that was done through the priests and the prophets. So the 10% tithe supported the Levites. That's similar to our income tax to support all the bureaucrats in Washington and in Austin. Then there's a second 10% tithe for all Jewish citizens. And part of this helped... to to take care of, of um, uh, the cost of the sacrifices and other aspects in terms of supporting the, the temple. This is outlined in Deuteronomy 14, 22-24. Again, it's related to the Mosaic Covenant and the support of the sanctuary in Jerusalem. has nothing to do with today. The fifth point, every third year Israel required the payment of a, Another tithe, and this was designed for welfare, to support the widows and the orphans, every third year only. And that, of course, was related to the support of the nation. So in conclusion, the tithe, as it was used in, in, in the Pentateuch, and Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and all throughout the major and minor prophets and the uh, historical books, all relates to the function of the bureaucracy in Israel. That leads us up to, we don't have time to get there, we'll have to wrap this up next time, to the famous verse that is quoted so often from Malachi 3, to bring your tithes and offerings into the storehouse. And we'll find out next time that that has nothing to do with today because the storehouse is the temple. And that same word used that's translated storehouse is translated in other places as the temple. as the temple, the house of God. So, where does that leave us as believers? Well, we'll get there next time, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study this evening, to recognize that as part of this study that there there is a giving obligation on us as members of the body of Christ, and that while it is not a tithe, It is nevertheless based on our free will understanding of grace, just as Abram did. It is a gratitude test in response to all that you have given us and all that you have provided for us. And we pray that just as Abram passed that test, that we would as well. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.